0: our chat is titled Asia as the Game Changer. I would like to kick off with some broad questions about the theme and then I want to go into more personal questions for Quanping. So my first question would be this. Asia has seen remarkable uh, economic transformation and growth in recent decades. How would you perceive Asia's role as a game changer in the current geopolitical landscape?
1: I was actually being a bit mischievous to say that obviously I believe that the next century will be the century of Asian growth. But in terms of the specific wording, Asia the game changer, my thinking is that Asia is not really the game changer right now because Asia's ascent has long been evident. The game changer today is the unexpectedly rapid unraveling of American hegemony over the rest of the world. And this is, in my view, speeding up. It's accelerating a transitional process which has long been there, but no one expected. And there's a number of articles you can read in New York Times and Financial Times where American commentators themselves say, the biggest threat to America is America itself not China and not the rest of the world. So I guess that's my first point, that I think Asia's ascendancy has been continuing for a long time already. And as you kindly alluded when I last addressed this audience or similar audience in 2017, when your theme was was Make Asia Great Again, which was a cute play on MAGA. So you can already see that even five, six years ago, Everyone was talking about the ascendancy of Asia. I think that's for sure happening, but it's being accelerated today. And I think that has got a lot of implications for us because this transitional process is going to be very fractures. It's going to be difficult when you see U.S.-China relations getting more and more problematic. But after the transition, I think we will see a truly bipolar world where China is clearly not going to be number one, but clearly America is not going to be number one. And Asia's ascendancy, I think, is something we need to recognize is it's happening faster than we think. Even in the banking world, the weaponization of SWIFT was something nobody expected, The idea that so many countries would begin to adopt alternative currencies to the U.S. dollar. So that's really accelerating. So that's my basic view that what's happening in the West is accelerating an inevitable process of Asia's ascendancy.
0: So with this acceleration of Asia's ascendancy, us going into a bipolar world and the unraveling that you see, What does it mean for your business or other businesses here operating in the Asia-Pacific region?
1: My view is that we're going to see in the next five to ten years a very volatile period as the whole world adjusts to a completely new paradigm where, and this is not just America now, where Western civilization, which has dominated the world, and I mean this not in any ideological manner, Western civilization dominated the world for the last 300 years for very good reasons. That's going to end. I think Western civilization is not going to decline and become nothing. Asia's rise is not going to be dominating the West, but it's going to be a much more a world of co-equal competing civilizations. That is where I think over a longer period, the world is going to be stabilizing. And that's, in a way, if those of you who are old enough like me to remember a movie called Back to the Future, I think the future is what it was like. The future is going to be what the world was like 300 years ago, before colonialism, before imperialism, when you had China and East Asia very strong in its own area, Western civilization strong in its own area, Islamic civilization strong, and only in the last 300 years, Western civilization very rightly, for very good reasons, became dominant. So it's going to settle at that. But before the world settles at that, there's going to be a period of very great tensions. And I think for investors, as well as others, we have to have the long view of knowing where it's going to settle at, but also recognize that this transition to a co-equal world between Western and Eastern civilizations is not going to happen easily. So therefore for investors, be prepared for a lot of volatility. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be the re-emergence of American or Western dominance and the so-called rules-based order after World War II, which was totally Western dominated. It's going to be a new world. And we must be prepared to see what the opportunities are in that new world. But at the same time, realize that it's the journey there, it's not going to be a very smooth one.
0: Yeah, given that you, s- you foresee more uh, increasing tensions, more rumbles, more volatility, where do you then see emerging opportunities and challenges that businesses can capitalize on?
1: I think there are huge opportunities for ASEAN. I mean, I've been, as an ex-journalist, I used to cover ASEAN 30, 40 years ago, and I was so sort of demoralized by ASEAN and the ASEAN leaders at every summit do nothing but talk about ASEAN unity. They still do nothing but talk about ASEAN unity in terms of the governments. But what's happened in the intervening years is that 600 million people that constitute ASEAN have finally, and any economist would tell you, every economy has got a takeoff point. And usually it's measured by per capita GDP, how many thousands of dollars. And any economist will tell you that ASEAN has reached that point. ASEAN is now at a takeoff trajectory. And 600 million people are on the move as consumers. It's partly what I tell Tony Fernandez, which he likes to hear. I call it the Air Asia phenomenon. And it's really an Air Asia phenomenon. How could you have expected 30 years ago that low-cost carriers like Air Asia could boom? And they've boomed because millions and millions of ASEAN consumers are traveling all over the world. And I call it, in my industry rainbow tourism, because in the past, 30 years ago, when I first started in this business, tourism was one color: white people in one direction, coming to Asia. Now tourism is rainbow colored, brown people, yellow people, brown black people, pink people, all traveling. So I think my my confidence in the consumption capability of Southeast Asia as a whole is enormous. Mm-hmm. And I think we should have the confidence to think that while China is very important, and while China-US politics is going to play out and it's going to upset supply chains, it's going to make it difficult for for Singapore investors and Singapore government to figure out where we stand in all this. We must not forget that ASEAN, which incidentally I know who's paying for my dinner, which Bank of Singapore is very strong in ASEAN, right? So,
0: Jason, smiling there. Yeah, you see this, this,
1: this. I knew you gave me good wine, so I'm I'm uh, <laughs> singing for my supper. But truly, I believe all of us in ASEAN should not downplay the huge potential of an ASEAN on the rise, Mm. in terms of its consumption capability.
0: Did you see the number of concerts that are being held here in Singapore and the number of Southeast Asian neighbors that are trying to get tickets as well for Taylor Swift and Coldplay? Yeah. Uh, Okay, the other thing I wanted to ask too is that given the very strong presence of your business here in Asia, uh, how do you adapt you know, your different business models to suit different cultural contexts because your brand, your business is also going, being expanded beyond Asia. Well, I mean... What factors do you consider before you go into... I think
1: one of the, well, one of the possible reasons that we've been relatively successful is partly due to something I've always considered to be a, a flaw in my own background. And that was that I've always been an outsider to everything. I grew up in Thailand, but I'm not Thai. I didn't go to Thai schools. I came to Singapore. I did national service, but I don't have a lot of Singapore friends from old days. I'm not Thai. I'm not truly Singaporean. I'm not truly American. I'm nothing. So that has forced me to have a more cosmopolitan uh, world outlook. Mm -hmm. And that's helped me to the extent that anywhere I go, and we are now in 25 countries from Cuba to Mexico to China to Vietnam and so on, I don't particularly feel... Out of place. And I think that's one of the problems that younger Singaporeans have. And I've always counseled my younger friends in SMU and so on when I used to chair it, that Singaporeans have got to break out of our mentality that we are the best. We go to Jakarta and we say, oh, it's filthy. We want to go to New York and London. We think Bangkok is a place to nice place to party and shop, but we don't really respect Thailand. We We have this mentality among Singaporeans that somehow we're entitled to be superior to others. And in many ways, as a Singaporean, I'm very proud of what Singapore has achieved. But I think it's so critically important that we also recognize that our success is not something we should think has been so hard won and that other people who haven't succeeded have themselves to blame. I mean, Indonesia is a big country. Thailand is big. They have their own problems. And particularly when I look at many of my colleagues who are from Malaysia and from Singapore, I think many of you who are employers out there would recognize that the Malaysians are a lot hungrier. And I tell this to my own SMU students. We are not hungry enough we're not humble enough to recognize that in Singapore, if we really want to succeed, it it's, cannot be based on just being the beautiful hotel to invite 1,500 tycoon family officers to come here. Our own people must be able to project themselves overseas and be able to function in, a, in very different cultural environments. I find the Malaysian-Chinese far better at doing that. The Singaporeans are not that comfortable functioning in a strange environment.
0: I saw quite a few of our guests uh, nodding emphatically when you talked about Malaysians there, I see you. Uh, Now, given that you have also uh, worked with so many different cultures, expanded the business into so many different countries, who then do you think is easiest to work with
1: Frankly, it, and I'm not trying to cop out, I think every culture is fundamentally the same. And people are the same everywhere. That's one of the things I find fascinating about my work, that that people are culturally so different um, in many ways, but if you can scratch below that cultural surface and you can reach and connect with uh, people they're the same. And for example, and I think this is borne out by our own uh, slogan for our service culture. We have as our service culture four words. I am with you. I am with you underpins everything that we do. It underpins how we treat each other as fellow colleagues. It underpins how we treat our our customers, our suppliers, and and everyone else. And The whole idea of I'm with you, which we spent a lot of time training all our associates from 53 countries, is that empathy is at the heart of understanding, and it's the very heart of reaching someone and connecting with someone and being able to then function properly. And if you have empathy for someone, you then can go below the surface of the cultural apparatus that each one has. And then you find that everybody's fundamentally the same. So I, I really think when I mention things about Singaporeans and so on, it's because that's just the surface level of Singaporeans. Below Singaporeans, we are no different than Malaysians or Mexicans or Cubans, but it behooves every company to ensure that they go beyond the cultural differences and be able to connect with people at the core level
0: thank you kp now one more question for you before i go to the q and a because we've got quite a number of questions coming in and that is the use of ai generative ai at mm. that how are you approaching the use of ai in your industry or maybe more generically how do you think leaders especially those in non-tech sectors should approach the use of ai
1: well one of the nice things is because i was trained in social sciences and i'm giving a graduation talk for a university in social sciences, I read something which is, to me, great, which is that you don't need to learn to code anymore, because I used to say that all, all kids should learn how to code when they're very young. You don't need to do that anymore because AI will do the coding for you. So AI will write algorithms for you. So that's the great news for everybody who is non-computer literate, yeah. <laughs> like all of us. But I think the point here is that, at least for me, I think my my perception is that AI has so fundam- it will so fundamentally fundamentally change the world. Its impact is will be greater than the internet. It will be like the discovery or the creation of electricity, for example. It's going to change human civilization, and therefore our my responsibility as the head of a company is not to go into the specific applications of AI in my industry because my colleagues are going to do that. For example, the application of AI in data management, revenue management, and so on, that's obvious. People are going to have to do that in terms of looking at how AI is going to affect every every little part of their specific business, whether you are in banking, you're in healthcare, and so on. The impact has got to be analyzed very specifically. But the job of a CEO or the head of a company is to look a little bit beyond that. And I've been spending more time trying to understand what is going to be the longer-term impact of AI. And I want to be kind of like the guy who is sitting in the world before electricity was introduced and thinking, wow, electricity has just been introduced. How is it going to affect the whole world? And I think that's AI is so fundamentally important that we shouldn't look at specifically how it's going to affect specific professions and jobs because it will inevitably affect all of that. And we also shouldn't get into all this science fiction dystopia about AI is going to control our lives and so on. AI is going to be as powerful a paradigm shift for civilizations as, say, electricity. How does that affect all of us in the longer term? And I think the people who can think of that, particularly investors and others, will be the ones who will have an early start in understanding the long-lasting impact of AI.
0: Sound advice there. Thank you, KP. I'm going to go to the top-voted question right now on pigeonhole, and that's this. You have substantial investments in China. Do you think the China landscape will improve over the next couple of years?
1: The China landscape for investments? Yes. I, I, I have to say then I'm incredibly optimistic about China and the Chinese economy, but not necessarily about Chinese equities. Okay, I think we have to differentiate the two. I think Chinese equities is going to go through a very volatile period. And you can obviously see so much foreign capital is invested in Chinese equities. As, you've got, as you get increasing polarization, as sanctions start to come in, I think Chinese equities are going to be incredibly volatile. So if you're looking in the short term as an investor, I would be really, really very careful about China. But if you're looking at China as a country and how the money that they're not spending on promoting apps and an internet-based economy like Alibaba, Tencent and so on, but they're putting the money behind AI and taking a lot of SOE funds and putting that into AI. Chinese investment into AI is so incredible that I think it's gonna transform the economy. And if you just look at electric vehicles, it's it's a 20 year thing. China long ago realized that it has to play a leapfrog game. China's automobile industry would be hopeless if it tried to compete with combustion engine uh, automobile companies. So it made a decision long ago, 20 over years ago, China decided they wanted to dominate the EV business, 20 over years ago, they wanted to be dominant players in the manufacturing of equipment for renewables. China has decided today it needs to leapfrog ahead and be a world leader in AI. So I think you have to distinguish between short term, medium term volatility and longer term investment. to any investor, I would say be careful of any investments that, that depend on a two-, three-year outlook, but any investments that you can make which would materialize in terms of the benefits to the Chinese economy and to the world over a four-, five-year period, I would put my money there.
0: All right. Speaking of money, what alternate currency or currencies would you prefer to hold other than the USD?
1: I think there's a a lot of romantic stuff about how Renminbi is going to be supplanting the US. I I don't think so at all. I don't even think the Chinese central bank wants the Renminbi to be that internationalized. So I, I personally think the US dollar will continue to be a very strong reserve currency for a long time to come. However, I don't think the US dollar will be the dominant currency between countries that are not necessarily needing to use the U.S. dollar. You're already seeing a lot of trade among the BRIC, the BRIC countries, denominated in their mutual currencies. So I see a world where the U.S. dollar, at least in the medium term, will remain the world's most important currency, but its importance in trade is going to decline. Um, Very simply put, how can China reduce its dependence on the U.S. dollar when it is the largest holder of U.S. debt? It's cutting its own nose to spite its face if it were to try to devalue the U.S. dollar. But the whole world is recognizing that with the weaponization of SWIFT, it is very dangerous to be totally dependent in terms of world trade as opposed to investments and currencies. It's very, very dangerous for world trade to only be conducted in US dollars. And I think a lot of countries from Russia onwards, Russia, Iran, all the sanctioned countries, including China, are recognizing that global trade is going to move towards multi-currencies.
0: And which would you bet on for the next two years? China versus India versus Vietnam, or equally vested in all three?
1: Well, bet on in terms of short-term equity gains or in terms of overall economic growth, I mean, you have to... Sh- you have Who put to in this that.
0: question? Would you like to clarify? Or how would you like <laughs> okay, to answer this question? Put,
1: if I could distinguish between the two, I, I, think, I still think, unfortunately, we've been trying to be in India for a long time. I think for a long time to come, and I hope I'm wrong, I think India is still going to be having the world's greatest potential, but potential right. only uh-huh. for a long time. Oh. Okay.
0: So is that quite positive
1: meaning that i honestly believe there are so many structural and cultural impediments to the indian economy that i honestly do not see india becoming a global player that easily a good friend of mine just published a book called china is number 1 india is number 2 and america is number 3 and i disagreed with him because i think there is a love affair with india right now I think in the short term, Indian equities will rise a lot. But I have fundamental concerns about, about India's political viability. I know everybody talks about how India is the great, world's greatest, uh, biggest de- democracy and so on. But I think the impediments to India, and a lot of my India friend, Indian friends are also quite worried about what Modi is doing and so on. So I do not see India becoming a number two civilizationally. I think India has got too many internal issues to handle. So I still see US and China as two major players. Um, In terms of short-term equities, I don't know. But I am very bullish on China. Vietnam, of course, I'm very bullish on, but Vietnam is very small. Vietnam is no doubt 95 million people, but that's a drop in the bucket compared to India or compared to China. Where I think there's I would not put my money on, but as an observer of history, my own guess is that an Islamic revolution or reformation, similar to a Protestant reformation, is something we're not watching carefully enough. Really? And I think that it can turn quite quickly, that the same momentum to bring the Islamic world to a renaissance That China has had. If you remember 200 years ago people thought China was totally washed out, totally hopeless It it went through a complete revolution But I think Islam is on the move and when you look at what's happening in Indonesia You look at what's happening even in places like Iran and so on I would actually say for a longer-term observer, not an investor, but a longer-term observer of civilizational change I would say the Islamic world is ripe for some change that's going to lead to Islam gaining its proper place on the world stage, co-equal to Christendom, co-equal to East Asia. And that would be something I would watch with great interest. But not necessarily put my money into right now.
0: Just observe, right? Okay. And your thoughts on companies like Airbnb as Mm. businesses? What do you think of it? The longevity of these sort of businesses.
1: Airbnb is great. I use Airbnb like others. and, and but, but it's not a fundamental disruption to the hospitality industry. Uh, it disrupted slightly in the beginning and we all come and live with it. It's kind of like the impact of, of Uber to taxi companies. A lot of them basically rode on The fact that regulators are very slow And so Airbnb rose on the fact that hotels were taxed and so on And people who have private homes and rented them were not taxed Uber rode on the fact that they don't have to pay their drivers any insurance They don't have to provide any kind of social safety nets No unionization on the grounds that they were gig workers and so on But eventually regulators catch up And you find that happening to Airbnb, you find that happening to Uber and so on. And that's what I would call basically economic convergence. Anything that is a disruptor begins to disrupt and then eventually they converge. The disruptors have to comply with regulations. The legacy companies learn some of the innovations of disruptors and you eventually have a convergence. So to me, Airbnb is great for my industry. It keeps us more alert. At the same time, because of Airbnb, our property sales are going through the roof because so many people are buying properties from us so that they can let it out on Airbnb. So, you know, you take the good and the bad and you you, you have to recognize that anything that happens in the world that's due to innovations is good, even if it threatens your business. And only if your business is like Kodak or Xerox and you don't see the writing on the wall, and you insist that your business model will be, will always maintain itself, then I think you are endangered. But if you are alert to disruption, and that it's good for you, and that you must learn from the disruptors, I think all of us can survive.
0: Thank you, KP. Uh, interesting question here. As a successful businessman, how would, how are you allocating your assets, and what is your top risk management strategy?
1: Well, of course, I allocated to Bank of Singapore, and they're supposed to invest <laughs> it for me, right?
0: It wasn't a plan. Do, do
1: we agree thing. on that?
0: <laughs>
1: obviously, obviously, right? Um, I, mean, I mean, how do you mean? How do I allocate my investments? Am I supposed to be a fund manager it, here? There was even a
0: question on: Do you hold any crypto? No. Okay, that's that's a direct no. Are you more an equities or a bonds guy or a well diversified portfolio?
1: I'm a pretty classic investor. Um, by the way, you're not in. Okay. Yeah. Top up, please.
0: Top up. No, 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 no. I don't need top to up. <laughs> you just
1: need to consume yours. Okay, this I might mean, I, I I'm pretty classic in the sense that I've never been a professional investor. Um, I was on the board of GIC, so although GIC is like 100 million times bigger than I am. But being on the board of GIC, I learned that fundamentally, if you are not a fund manager yourself, but you are only having some sort of um, override on fund allocation, then basically asset allocation is the main thing I should do. So, I am involved in asset allocation, and my children and others and family office managers would choose the actual specific equities and so on. In terms of asset allocation, I mean, it's pretty traditional without having to get into um, the specific asset allocation ratios that I'm into. But one thing I've learned from a lot of mistakes in the past, um, and that's basically Warren Buffett's great advice. Anything that you don't understand, don't invest in. Don't be in intimidated by people who come to you with all kinds of fancy things and make you feel stupid that you don't understand it, and it must be great. So I never really could understand interest rate derivatives really well. I understand a little bit about it, but I couldn't really understand how there could be little risk. I could only see that could be great risk. And when people tried to sell me that they were very low risk, My simple point was, I'm not saying I'm smarter than you, but hey, I don't understand it, so I'm not going to invest. I don't want to be the person to to say no to crypto, but frankly, for the life of me, I can't really understand the economic, long-term economic benefits of cryptocurrencies besides the highly speculative aspects. So I'm not going to poo-poo crypto because... It would be presumptuous of me. But my point, I guess, my point to all other investors out there, unless you're super smart, my, the one thing I've learned in 30 years of investing is never be intimidated by people who sell you things that you somehow feel if I don't invest in it, I must be stupid. You have to understand it, translate it to simple English for you. You understand it, you understand how it works, invest in it. Otherwise, I don't think it's worth investing in. So that's my investment philosophy.
0: Nice. I like that. And plain speak, please. What is your legacy, KP? What is what? Your legacy. What do you think is your legacy? And what advice would you have for families, family businesses?
1: For those of you who have family businesses, I think the last... 10 over years has led to a global shift in the perceptions of family businesses. Global shift in the sense that family businesses were always seen as being backward, nepotistic, and all the bad things you could think of, non-professional and so on. But in the last 10 years, with a number of financial crises in America, Europe, and elsewhere, I think we've seen that the the large multinationals with dispersed shareholdings, where management controls everything and there is no large shareholder who underpins the company and has the long term interest of the company at stake, whether it be a family or a sovereign wealth fund like Tomasek, these companies go wild and there's huge abuse by management. So the love affair and the huge respect for dispersed shareholding companies, the big global multinationals of the world, that has gone down a lot. And at the same time, you see family businesses that have continued, largely in Europe, but also in Asia, responsible family businesses that basically say, we want the business to be professionally run, and our children may not be the best people to run the business, but as professional owners of a business, the family will continue to be involved in strategy, in cultural, in values creation, we will be the ballast that will take the ship over the next 100 years. And I think in that respect, I think family businesses are hugely important. And the legacy I would like to leave is that family businesses such as mine do not have to be nepotistic, backward, antiquated, non-professional, all the bad things it can be. But that, in fact, a family business can be enlightened, can be progressive, can embody all the progressive values that we want and it still is one where the family is not just the not just the genetic family but the genetic family can create a larger family which is for everyone else involved in the enterprise i think that's the legacy i would like to leave
0: And what are you most excited for in the next five years? What are you most excited for in the next five years? What
1: am I most excited for?
0: You you joked before that if you had 80 hotels, by the time you were 80, that is too slow a number. And anyway, by 2025, you're, you're, you're supposed to grow the hotel to 100, right? You're on track to do that. And you're nowhere near 80. So what is the golden number?
1: Mm-hmm. What's the overall number of hotels I want to have?
0: Yeah, by the time... We're... I
1: mean, look, it's, it's going to be as many as I can possibly have, but it's not a numbers game. Um, what's going to be most exciting? Mm-hmm. Probably my fifth grandchild, my sixth, my seventh, my eighth grandchild, Aww. by competing with all my friends out there, more <laughs> grandchildren, um, although I'm not the one who's going to decide. I think what's most exciting in the next five years is the, is the idea that um, that one tries to find... Purpose In whatever you do I'm going through uh, Life phases uh, I'm not completely retired Because I'm in a family business I have good friends of mine At my age And I'm 71 Who are top CEOs Of companies And they have completely retired I think in the remaining years Of my life I would like to see How I can find A renewed sense of purpose Just like a lot of my friends at my age are also looking at the fact that we refuse to accept that just because you have a numerical age of 70, you're supposed to retire. And yet, it's a completely new landscape out there. I mean, people still think that at 70, you're supposed to just retire and, and do nothing. But that's not the case. The number of people we all know who are in their 70s and still very vibrant, very energetic, there are hordes of people how do we find new purpose? How do we define that there is going to be a new world where people who are supposedly past retirement age can find meaning and purpose in their lives? That's what excites me uh, for the next five years and hopefully 10, 15, 20.
0: So what do you see yourself doing then? Besides finding this renewed purpose, do you have an inkling maybe you would want Well, to- I'm,
1: I'm very glad that... We are past the period of EP because I used to be asked this silly question, so now you can't ask that anymore. Because (laughs) EP EP is elected presidency. So I I was asked that the last two times I gave talks. I won't. I won't. Yeah. That's long past. So I'm a happy retiree. Okay, let's leave it at that.
0: And and what about your motto in life then, going forward? Sorry. Motto in life. My. Motto in life. Mo- oh, wait, wait, there's my- another question here that says, what worries you the most and what gives you reason for hope?
1: What gives me what?
0: Reason for hope and what worries you the most?
1: What worries me most overall, whether it be in companies, families, or country, is hubris. Hubris in thinking that you're successful because you did it. On your own, and that's something I've spoken about in terms of uh, meritocracy. That the the tyranny of meritocracy, which is a famous book that now Singaporeans are talking about, is that it, you know, and the the irony is that in a supposedly meritocratic society like Singapore, those who have made it think that they did de- they actually deserve it, whereas in fact it's not necessarily true. So to me, hubris is the biggest danger. I, I mean, you know. I don't take myself seriously. I take my work seriously. I take Singapore seriously. I I take everything that I do seriously. I don't take the fact that we're up here drinking red wine seriously. You, You can't take yourself seriously. I just see too many of my friends, too many institutions, too many CEOs, too many politicians. They don't take just their work seriously. They take themselves seriously. And I think that's very dangerous. The reason for hope is the fact that I think I think that even at my relatively advanced age, I'm very excited about every day when I wake up. And I think that when you lose a sense of purpose, then life becomes meaningless. So I have my own sense of purpose. Everybody else has a sense of purpose. And it gives me hope when I travel around the world and look at other people, particularly young people, that there is that hunger. There is that hunger to do better for themselves. There's a hunger to change the world. And people in their 20s are no different than people in my 20s. Although I always tell them, don't make the mistakes I made. Don't go to jail. Don't, go, don't lose money. Don't become all these things. You can still be hungry, but you can be smarter and hungry. You don't be, need to be so stupid and hungry. But that hunger is what gives me hope that, that a lot of young people still have that hunger.
0: Thank you so much, KP. And we're just going to wrap up this uh, really lovely fireside chat with some uh, final words for you to our audience, our BOS audience tonight, comprising you know family offices, investors, and your friends. What would you say to them?
1: My final word.
0: Words, if you like.
1: Uh, well, besides saying you know that BOS is the best bank they've ever banked with. What, what else? What else? Can I, can you give me the pad that I'm, the, the messages I'm supposed to say for you? I forgot what they were. Um, I think besides that, I guess my final word would be wherever you come from, whether you are from Singapore or, or around the region which some of you are from. I think there's no better time to be where we are today. And I've lived a long life, and I'm really, really so excited for the future of Southeast Asia. And we sit, Singapore sits in the middle of this. I'm very happy that BOS sees that its mandate is within ASEAN because this is where the future is. And I only need to caution people that you don't realize, unless you have been where I was 30, 40 years ago in Asia, you may take this opportunity for granted. But you must never take it for granted. We have to seize the opportunity when it's now and not waste it. That's my message.
0: Seize the opportunity that is now and not waste it. I couldn't have summed it up better than myself. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ho Kwon Ping. Let's give him a big round of applause, please. Thank you.
1: This podcast was brought to you by Bank of Singapore.